Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. For $3 a month, just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts, From John to Justin and Pucks and Cups, which release every single week and are available on all podcast platforms. Today I'm speaking with John McFarlane, who, along with Lynn Salmon, wrote the book Around the World in a Dugout Canoe. It looks at the untold story of Captain John Boss and the Tillicum. It's a really actually interesting story because he traveled around the world essentially in a canoe. He went through a series of first mates and he made the journey and it took him several years. And he was just an interesting individual to begin with. And I really enjoyed this book. So let's get right to the interview. What inspired you to write about Voss and his, uh, his epic journey in this canoe around the world? Well, uh, um, 30-odd years ago, I was the uh, director of the Maritime Museum of British Columbia. And uh, one of the big exhibits that they had in the museum at that time, and probably the largest item in their collection, was the actual dugout canoe Tillicum. And every morning when I went in and opened up the museum so that we could uh, go public every day, I had to step behind this vessel on display to turn on the lights. And so my hand would go up onto the deck and uh, I began to think about the vessel and uh, the Captain Voss more and more and more. I started to have a kind of spiritual connection with it. Uh, to be honest, uh, in that very earliest uh, time of my contact with it, I knew that the vessel was a significant part of British Columbia's uh, heritage. And I knew that it had gone on quite a dramatic international voyage, but I didn't really know much about the details. I read Captain Voss's book, which was published in 1913. And I read the book written by his, the first of his many mates, Norman Lexton, which was published in 1970. Uh, and so those were obviously firsthand accounts. And I took those to be the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, to be accurate and to be the complete stories. But the, uh, the more I investigated uh, the books, the more questions kept being raised. There were inconsistencies. There were, looked like mistakes in the books. Uh, it looked like there were pieces that were left out or got mixed up. And so it occurred to me 
that I could do an edited version of this story uh, and that it would uh, uh, kind of fix these problems. And it wasn't so simple. Uh, the more I delved into it, the more and more and more difficult this whole story be became. Then life intervened and I stopped working on the project for about 20 odd years. And I uh, was contacted about five years ago by a publisher in Paris who was publishing a book about the 100 greatest uh, sailors in all of history. Mm -hmm. And they considered Captain Voss to be one of those, which was a bit of a surprise to me to see that he was on the, considered on the same level as famous explorers and Captain Cook yeah. and people like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a big book. It had 100 chapters. And they gave me one chapter with four pages in it to tell the story. <laughs> So I wrote the four pages, which they liked, and uh, it just didn't seem to me to even begin to scratch the surface. So I thought that this would be an interesting article for a magazine, and I began to write a magazine article about it. And when the magazine article hit 40 pages, I knew that it, it had to be a book. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, when, you, when you start reading the book, uh, you really explore Voss, who he was, and he's, he's a really interesting character. I mean, there's rumors that he shanged high people uh, who were drinking at his pub. Uh, he's obviously a very experienced and skilled uh, sailor. Like, there's no question about that. But uh, what type of person was Voss? Like, was he just, was he somebody who was trying to make a buck? Was he an explorer? Was he all of those things? I think he was a very complex character who changed through his life. Mm -hmm. So he, he, st he started out as a uh, sailing master of full rigged ships, sailing uh, on the open ocean. And so he was a short, burly, really tough character. And I think in those days, he was probably quite an unpleasant person. <laughs> when he came ashore, he went into... Uh, business. Uh, he wasn't a very good businessman. So to be, again, really frank, he operated on the far side of the law. <laughs> he might, in fact, he was actually a, a wanted character by the uh, United States authorities on their most wanted list at one time uh, for smuggling drugs into the United States. He trafficked in moving uh, Asian people across from Canada into the United States. And yes, indeed, in his pub uh, in Crofton, British Columbia, he would, drug, he would drug young men who would wake up the next morning on a sailing ship bound for Asia or Australia or someplace foreign, and having been paid handsomely by the masters of these vessels who needed to make up a crew. So he was a pretty tough and nasty character in those early days. Mm -hmm. But over time, he seems to have mellowed, uh, especially during and after his voyage. He became quite a uh, suave uh, charmer. He met prime ministers and presidents. He met archbishops. He met famous uh, uh, war heroes. People sought him out for his company and for his stories. And he became a close friend of Sir Ernest Shackleton, the Antarctic explorer. Uh, so at, he was noted uh, as a storyteller and um, was very, very popular late in his life. Mm 
uh, on the social scene. <laughs> uh, one thing that I, I kind of found weird in he travels all the way around the world. He gets to you know, South America, Brazil, and then rather than continue north or even take it over, you know, that brief little area of Panama, because this is before the Panama Canal, uh, he goes to England rather than, say, go to like Quebec City or Montreal. Why did he choose kind of to go that way, then technically complete the voyage by going back to Canada? Well, we're not entirely sure, but the whole point of his voyage, which was a stunt, was to become rich and famous. Mm -hmm. So he was constantly looking for venues in which to achieve that goal. I think he heard that there was a big exhibition in London at that time, which was the Naval and Fisheries Exhibition of 1905. And he thought that he could get uh, a lot of revenue by putting his boat on display at this exhibition. It was kind of sort of like a world's fair, a big uh, exhibition in Earl's Court international uh, participation. And so he headed to England. Now he really should have continued again south around South America back to Victoria in order to complete the voyage. But he declared in England that he had circumnavigated the globe, which he clearly had not. If you look at the map, it's clearly not a circumnavigation. And he lost interest in the voyage and sold the boat to a yachtsman as a yacht. Mm -hmm. And uh, he then went on uh, to, to South America where he did some treasure hunting, ended up back in Victoria uh, running uh, the lifeboat there he went on to Japan, uh, spent a number of years living in Japan, and then uh, he ended his life penniless as a taxi driver <laughs> in Tracy, California. So he, uh, he didn't make very much money in London. I think that's where he began to lose uh, faith. But he had been on his voyage for three and a half years, and I think he was beginning to become a little bit of old news that he had been a media, he had been a media darling, uh, uh, really a rock star of his day for most of the voyage, but he really wore out his story in in England, and people lost interest and moved on to other topics. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at your book, there's kind of three characters. There's Voss. There's his series of first mates, and then there's the the canoe, the Tilikum. And so even though Voss didn't complete the journey, the canoe did, but it had kind of its, its own life after, after Voss essentially abandoned it. Um, what, I guess, uh, is the story of the canoe after that, like its life after that journey, is that part of like the, the whole story? Like, um, is that something you wanted to do to kind of show that how the canoe also got back to Victoria eventually? Yes, you know, it's very unusual if you look back through the history of small craft voyaging uh, for the vessels to survive, the stories survive, the pictures survive, but very, very seldom the vessels survive. And this is one uh, exception to the rule. And it's, it's a very unusual vessel. It's quite large. Mm -hmm. It had been abandoned in England, it was uh, abandoned on the mud flats and was full of mud. It really should have just rotted away there. But for some reason, people in England gave notice of this situation to authorities in Victoria. And people in Victoria 
felt such a keen kinship with this vessel that they demanded that it be brought back to Victoria and to be put on display, uh, which was done. It was uh, rescued, it was cleaned out, put on the deck of a freighter and shipped through the Panama Canal to, uh, to Victoria. And it sat on display in a number of different venues before ending up inside the Maritime Museum on Bastion Square. The, uh, until fairly recently, the people of Victoria have felt that the vessel belonged to them. Now, they may not have fully understood the story. They may, have, in fact, have been able to recall very little of the story other than the fact that it was Captain Voss and that it sailed around the world. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, they were very keen that it should be in Victoria and be uh, uh, accessible on display. Uh, the uh, the vessel uh, eventually uh, ended up inside the Maritime Museum, it, and when the Maritime Museum became evicted from their quarters uh, in 2015, it was moved into storage, where it's still very safe and sound, but inaccessible to the public. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, one of the big stories of the of the journey, and it's one that you touch on for quite a bit, is the fact that um, the second of his first mates uh, died while on the way to Australia. Uh, and it's it's pretty clear, like you, you present the story, like, it is very clear that this was an accidental death. It, but why do tales of murder persist? Is it just because people like those you know, those dark tales of the sea. Uh, is that why? And then obviously the uh, Luxon wrote about it and, and made some accusations, or at least his daughter did. Yes. Um, the, uh, there was no question at the time that it was an accident, but a careless comment that Norman Luxton made in the manuscript of his book, mm -hmm. uh, which by the way, there was a note in the book that it said to his daughter that this was strictly as a reminiscence for her, that he never intended uh, for the book to be published. Mm -hmm. He, of course, owned a newspaper and a printing press. He could have published the book anytime if he had really wanted it to be, to be published. And he uh, left this, this character assassination of a note in the book, which said that Voss had murdered his mate. I don't know whether he hoped that the book would eventually be published or what. But so the whole, uh, the whole idea of the voyage had been Norman Luxton's. 
he had read Joshua Slocum's book, Sailing Alone Around the World, and realized that Joshua Slocum had become world famous and rich from the Mm -hmm. lectures and from the sales of the book. And so he got it into his head that he could say it, do a similar stunt and that the, uh, that the, uh, that they would become uh, rich and famous by out slocuming slocum. (laughs) And so he needed, of course, somebody to get him around the world. He was not a sailor himself. He was a journalist. So he thought he would write the books and write the articles and do the publicity. And his friend who just lived a few blocks away, Captain Voss, would get them around the world safely. His original idea was to buy a sealing schooner, which uh, Voss dismissed immediately and said that that was too easy, that anybody (laughs) could sail around the world in a sealing schooner. What they really needed to do was to do this in a uh, dugout canoe. He said that would attract a lot of attention and that would uh, be the catalyst for making them uh, uh, famous. And he was convinced that he could deliver on getting them around safely. Uh, Luxton bought into this in a very serious way. And he made a lot of boasts publicly about what they were going to achieve. uh, To the point where when he decided partway through the voyage that he wanted to abandon the voyage, he... Uh, really needed an alibi, an explanation of why this was happening, something that where he could save face. So he concocted this idea, which he states in his book, that he thought Voss was going to kill him. Uh, He also had an accident uh, uh, on a reef and got some coral poisoning, which Mm -hmm. must have uh, have, uh, made the situation worse. But all the way across the Pacific, they were together on a very small boat in a in the cabin of the boat was so small that it could only hold one of them with the other one had to sit outside for 12 hours a day while the other one was inside either sleeping or cooking or washing or doing something they could never be more than a few feet apart and you can only imagine after a couple of months of this they got really a serious case of cabin fever and they i think got to the point where they really detested each other now, old Voss, of course, was a sailing ship captain, and he was used to uh, giving barking orders. And if they weren't instantly obeyed, no doubt he associated that with a number of threats about what he would do if, you know, if you don't move faster, I'm going to th- do this. I'm going to do grievous bodily harm on you. Mm-hmm. And I think because of the cabin fever, Luxton began to actually believe that these threats were real. That. Voss intended to do the things that he was threatening. And he began to realize, I have to get off this boat. (laughs) Uh, But he couldn't figure out how he was going to do this and save face. Anyway, when they got to Fiji, he said, okay, that's it. I've had enough. And he found this young mate who eventually was washed overboard on the way to Australia. Luxton carried on to Australia. And when Voss arrived and the mate was... Uh, dead. That was perfect. That was the explanation. I left the voyage because I knew Voss was going to kill me as he killed the next fellow who was the mate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you can see this chain of events. 
over the years, apparently, uh, as I read in newspaper articles when Lexton was interviewed, he, the story started out that uh, Voss was a drunkard and not to be trusted. And then after about 20 years, the story evolved to where he was a drunkard and has threatening to kill Lexton <laughs> to the point where then Lexton said, I had to leave the voyage because I knew that I would be murdered. He put this note in his book and his daughter, Eleanor, published the book and it said, Voss was a murderer. He killed his mate and he was a drunkard and a lot of other uh, bad, bad character references. So uh, I think it's explainable, but not forgivable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, looking at Voss, you know, for all of his... The, the not so great things, the great things. The fact is like he did make an incredible journey. Uh, and uh, with his first mates, he, he would have several days where he'd have a first mate who was seasick because they were getting used to it. So a lot of this was essentially by himself, but uh, what can we learn from Ross in terms of our own goals, our own hopes, uh, things we want to accomplish? Well, you have to remember at the time, Yachtsmen almost never sailed offshore. They were coastal sailors. A few sailors sailed across the Atlantic. One or two had sailed across the Pacific and only Joshua Slocum had sailed around the world. He did so alone, by the way. He didn't have a mate with him. And Voss, through his public lectures and his, his uh, contact with the press, popularized the idea of challenge blue water sailing. So these things that we still see today, um, you see it in the headlines, the youngest person ever sailed around the world, the oldest person, uh, the oldest wo woman, uh, the oldest man, the, 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 uh, somebody who sails around single-handed five times, they stop or they do it unassisted uh, nonstop. Mm -hmm. All of that started with, with John Voss, and he has inspired generations of people to take on these, uh, well, ridiculously dangerous <laughs> voyages and uh, difficult voyages <laughs> because uh, people looked at what, how he did it and said, well, if he could do it, I can do it. Mm -hmm. uh it is a massive achievement, uh, even though, like you said, technically he didn't go around the world. He did go an immense amount of distance and three years. 40,000 40, miles. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So technically around the world in terms of kilometer uh, wise. But why, why is it not something that we even really know about in Canada? Because it is kind of a Canadian story. Mm -hmm. It was a Canadian. It came from Canada, the, the canoes in Canada. But like, like I said, even I didn't even know about this until I received your book. So what, why are we not celebrating this more like we would something like, uh, like Skokum or even Magellan or anything else uh, uh, that has to do with circumnavigation? Well, when, until uh, uh, perhaps about 1960, this was a story that was well known in Canada and it would appear in retold in newspapers regularly ac mm -hmm. across Canada. Uh, but gradually it came a little bit out of fashion. The story is still 
right in the forefront of the minds of people who follow stories of the sea in Australia, New Zealand, in London. Uh, I've been contacted by people all over the world. Captain Voss's book is still in print after 110 years. It's never been out of print. It's been translated into a dozen languages. When I was the director of the Maritime Museum, I met uh, yachtsmen from Siberia who sailed to Victoria specifically to see the Tilikum because they had read the Russian edition of Venturesome Voyages. Uh, the Japanese sail training ships that came to Victoria always made a pilgrimage to the museum to have a uh, look at the vessel and to hear the story. Uh, the uh, Before the fall of the Soviet uh, regime in Eastern Europe, people uh, would dream about doing these kinds of voyages, Polish and Czechs and other people, because it represented to them the ultimate freedom of uh, living close to nature and uh, 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 undertaking a difficult task. It, uh, it was something that they dreamed about. And uh, even now, uh, I've had been uh, contacted by people in many, many countries who feel that it's a story that's very much alive in their minds. Mm -hmm. But it's very odd to me that the story has become almost completely forgotten in British Columbia and in the rest of Canada. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it was one of my goals was to bring, bring it back up into the forefront. And I, you do an excellent job of it with that book. Like I said, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, so uh, in terms of his journey, do you feel like it, is it luck that he made it? Is it skill? Is it a combination of both? Uh, because essentially, like you said, it's a canoe. It's, it's not a big boat. It's a big wave can take this thing out completely. And numerous times in the book, you talk about how he thinks he's going to die. There was that time where he, something was wrong with him until he drank that mustard solution that uh, seemed to heal him. Was it just a combination of just skill and luck that he was able to survive this? Well, I think he was a really tough character. <laughs> and I mean, really tough. Mm -hmm. He was able to put up with the most terrible living conditions on board the vessel. And as uh, he talks about how in the course of the voyage over the three and a half years, he grew to love this little vessel more and more and more. It must have been absolutely terrifying for his mates, at least, if not for him, to be sitting in the cockpit of that vessel about 18 inches off the water <laughs> with huge waves, monster waves all around them. Mm -hmm. And you have to remember, no radio, no weather reports, no, uh, no radar, no, no aids of any kind. Mm -hmm. And even at night, no light. He just had a little candle in the, uh, in the binnacle so he could read the compass. Uh, uh, there, they, he couldn't swim. He wasn't tied uh, to the boat with a lifeline. He didn't wear a life preserver. Uh, they would have been wet all the time. Mm -hmm. They would have been hungry and thirsty. And yet, as it went on, he, he grew to love that vessel more and more and more and to believe in its capabilities. He believed that the, the shape of the hull, the design, this technology, which had been honed over thousands of years by uh, canoe carvers on the west coast of Canada, 
he came to supremely believe that this was the finest possible design for a small craft. He also believed that there were some scientific principles which could be deduced, which uh, if learned uh, would allow uh, any seaman to, to safely handle a small boat in any conditions that you can imagine. And now I've been told by many uh, single-handed circumnavigators that some of his ideas are, are quite wacky and that he might have actually been very lucky. Uh, on the other hand, they said he obviously had seamanship skills mm -hmm. that were so superlative that uh, perhaps it would be difficult to find many other seamen who could equal them. But he certainly was able to handle that little boat under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when he crossed the Pacific, it had no engine, so he only visited islands that the wind and currents took him to. He had one, a one-sheet map of the Pacific Ocean uh, that showed uh, islands big enough to show up on a one-sheet map. <laughs> and uh, that, that was all he had in order to, uh, to get across that and, the, that and the compass. And he took, of course, sun sights with his, uh, with his sextant every day. Uh, and plotted the positions on the map. Other than that, he just seemed to have supreme confidence that he was going to get to where he was going and everything would be fine. Absolutely. And then just the last question is, uh, if people want to find the book, uh, where can they find it? Uh, if they want to learn more about the story, what can they do? Uh, can you, I don't, is that showing right way around on your it screen? It is, yep, yep. Good. Uh, the book uh, Around the World in a Dugout Canoe is available uh, through your local books, independent booksellers. It's also available through Canada's History Magazine, and it's available through Amazon online. Uh, it, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's in print. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a fantastic book. Um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, that was all my questions. The only thing that bothered me about the journey was the woman in New Zealand who gave him the cake to take to her son. Yes. And I know he couldn't <laughs> get to the island. Like, I understand why, but it really bothered me that he never delivered it and then he ate it later on. And for some reason, it was like, I'm sure that this poor guy was waiting for this wonderful cake. And even though Voss did need it, uh, it would have been nice to deliver well, that. <laughs> yes, uh... Uh, and I think his mate gave it away when uh, he couldn't understand why Voss wasn't making more of an effort to land the boat on Cocos Island. And they <laughs> sailed by. And as soon as he had sailed by, he says to the mate, go up and get that package. And when they opened <laughs> it up, there was the cake. And the mate says, ah, now I know why we didn't land. Yeah, and of yeah. course, when they, got to, when they got to South Africa, they he, there was a telegram waiting for him, which said, where's, where's my cake? <laughs> yeah. For some reason that was just, that was the only thing that bothered me was you could have delivered that. Like there was the one thing you had, he could have done, but I, I understand yes. too, because it's probably the best cake he ever had in his life. Uh, Cause they were yes, pretty hungry yes. by that point. <laughs> yes. The, yeah. the uh, circumnavigators who read the story said uh, they scratched their head too and said, you know, he's, they said, uh, it's pretty hard. To, if you can see Cocos Island, they said, there's no particular reason why he couldn't have uh, made landfall there. 
They said he he sailed by because he wanted to sail by. Yeah, he wanted that cake. He was he was thinking yeah. of that cake. That was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John McFarlane. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can also visit my website where you'll find all my podcast episodes, as well as hundreds of articles on Canada's history. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to Patreon.com slash CanadaEHX, just like all of these wonderful patrons have. And I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hare Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. You can also find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. And I'm on Twitter. Just go to Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. I'm also on Instagram. And you just have to look for Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.